This is the Impact Church Podcast. Here at Impact, we believe a powerful word at the right time can help you overcome any challenges you are facing. Wherever you are listening or whatever you're going through, we pray this message speaks exactly to your need. Enjoy. The day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let us bask in it. Let us take a moment and step back into the past with it. Let us dive into scripture and illuminate fulfillment and then let it be our presence, the desire to teach and forgive as Jesus did. See, the first saying was in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, and it was, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. See, that might have been the first saying, but that wasn't the first time that we saw it in Scripture. If we go back to Old Testament, a couple of thousands of years before this event, this is when this event was scripted in Psalms 109, chapters 3 and 4. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. In return for my love, they are my accusers, but I give myself to prayer. You see what I love about this is, see, Old Testament was prophecy. See, New Testament, fulfillment. And what was about to happen, they didn't even realize, y'all. They was going for the perfect sacrifice into the law of the church. Y'all not hearing me this morning. See, what I love about the word of the Lord is that he will do what he said he's going to do. See, what I know this morning is that who you're talking to, you got to know who said what. And we look into context, we understand that Luke was a cultured Greek. See, he was a Greek and he didn't know, he wasn't an eyewitness, but he had to actually go and sit under the teachings of the Apostle Paul before he can give the word to those who were hungry looking for edification, as in those searching for answers so that they can be full of the Holy Spirit. See, I'm not talking about full like hunger pains. I'm talking about full that you can only experience from the bread of heaven in which we can eat we are hungry no more. You see, who was he talking to? He talked about in Luke chapter 1, he was talking to a man named Theophilus. Now, him and Theophilus was kind of the same. They were both Greeks now. However, there was a couple of differences. And one of those differences was that while Luke was hungry and he knew about the word of God, he lacked the faith. Theophilus lacked the knowledge. Luke went in and he not only taught us who Jesus was, he not only taught us he also taught us Jesus' character. See, if we go into Luke chapter 7, we can actually see Jesus' character. This is when he met the woman with the alabaster box. Now, he didn't even have to meet her by accident. He actually met her when he was invited to somebody's house for dinner, a Pharisee's house for dinner. Now, here's what I want y'all to know. This man wasn't his friend. How many of y'all know that sometimes some people invite you into the comfort of their own home, they get you out your comfort zone? Hallelujah, hallelujah. To catch you in a compromising situation so that they can steal from you what thus saith the Lord. But see, Jesus didn't have to worry about anything. He let his character speak for himself. See, when this woman came out of nowhere into this home that she wasn't invited to, she was washing his feet with her hair. She was bathing his feet with her tears. She was bathing his feet with a precious oil. And Jesus didn't have nothing to say at first because what happened was this Pharisee was over here like a hater would. See, I call him a fraud. If you gin, why, you might call somebody like that a backstabber. If you 
Gen Z, you might call him the ops, but no matter what happens, Jesus is not caught by surprise. This man was over here like if he really knew who this woman was, he wouldn't even let her get close to that big toe. But he did. And instead of him addressing this man right now, he spoke first edification. He talked about a lender, and two people owed him a debt. Neither one of them could owe that debt. However, that lender forgave them both. And he said to Simon, hey, Simon, who do you think is going to love that lender more? Because he forgave both of their debts. And Simon said, hey, I think he's going to love the one who had a little bit bigger debt. See, this woman on the floor, she was a sinful woman. She was a woman who everybody knew who her sin was, and she had a bigger debt. And so Jesus forgave that woman. And after, after he spoke that word, See, what I know about Jesus is that Jesus is the true and living vine. And he first sowed that seed of knowledge, and then he tilled it so that the fruit can grow, so that that man can understand. Because you don't understand that sometimes you're speaking to people, and they don't even have the capacity to understand what you're speaking. And so, therefore, you're going to have to teach them in love, in grace, and you're going to have to give them that grace first. Daughter, I forgive you. Here you are offering of yourself a perfect human sacrifice where mosaic law couldn't do it here you are trying to uphold the law you ain't anointed my head you ain't even touched the baby toe when I walked in but here she is giving of herself you see as I went into um, listening to what I was being asked to, to read I listened to a song by Lauren Hill called forgive them father there's a part in there that says you feed a man until he's full and he still wants beef y'all this beef led Jesus to the cross this beef they killed this man because they couldn't swallow it it was hard to swallow you ever had a tough cut of beef here Jesus is forgiving people. Here he is giving um, um, fulfillment. Here he is healing people. Here he is bringing demons out of people. And they still wanted this man death. But his first response was forgiveness. Thank you, Jesus. So as I ended my study, I asked myself, and I now pose those same questions to you. Who in our circle can we show and tell the gospel to? Not with knowledge alone, but with Christ-emulated character too. Because I've tested Miss Angelou, and she was right that people won't forget the feeling that they get after they experienced you, although they may forget some of what you say and even some of what you do. So how can we, with forgiveness and grace anew, make it so less of the world lives without a clue? To his accusers, Jesus' response was, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. To your opposition, what say you? Thank you. Truly I say to you, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. <laughs> I could talk about this for 30 minutes, but I won't because I only got a couple minutes. So let's start at the cross, okay? I think it's important that we talk about what was happening at that time. Um, Jesus was on the cross. There were two criminals next to him. One of them was mocking Jesus. And he was saying, hey, you know what? If you're really the Messiah, you're going to save your neck, and you're going to save ours too. And this kind of started a chain reaction because the other criminal pretty much checked him and said, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on, man. We did our dirt. We did our crime. The punishment for it is just. But this man, he did nothing. 
And then what happened next? See, the criminal that was mocking Jesus, he didn't understand the real reason that Jesus was on a cross in the first place. So what, what happened next with the criminal that he was going through a process he was uncovering, and what he was doing is he was just acknowledging that what he did was wrong, but that Jesus was blameless. And what he said next was, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. <laughs> so the first insight that I got from this passage is the power of faith. See, the criminal's faith in Jesus is what led to his salvation. Right? And I think today that teaches us Christians that the, po the power of faith and the importance of trusting in Jesus for our salvation. So Jesus' response to the criminal's plea, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Which leads to my second insight. The promise of eternal life. See, when Jesus said, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise, what that does for us today as Christians that gives us hope and assurance of a better life after the physical death. And that brings me to my third insight. The power of forgiveness. <laughs> Whew, this hits home. And I need y'all to understand something. That this passage so shows Jesus' willingness to forgive, even in the midst of intense suffering. And this teaches us as Christians today the importance of forgiving, even in difficult situations. So even though, and this is what's crazy, even though Jesus was suffering, he still had a you-first mentality. He's hanging on the cross, y'all. And he still had the capacity to show grace. Some of us can't even focus if we got a paper cut. <laughs> but Jesus is it's, it's on the cross and still had the capacity to show grace. I just think that's phenomenal by saying, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, show of hands, who has ever been in a situation where they've told themselves, I don't know if I can forgive this person for what they did to me? All right. I know some of y'all have been keeping it real up in here. All right. But it's all good. So the next time, right, I challenge everyone in here, the next time you get in a situation of adversity or you get in a situation where you're struggling to forgive someone, I want you to think of how Jesus dealt with and how he showed grace through adversity, how he was on the cross and he still had the capacity to love someone, to show compassion, 
See, I think when we get in difficult situations, we've always been taught growing up, WWJD. Who could tell me what that means? What would Jesus do? But can I keep it real with y'all? I think we as a people have become desensitized to what would Jesus do. It's like when a parent's giving a child a lesson, like, yeah, 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 my dad, I know. What would Jesus do? But I think we're looking at it. It's good to think about it that way, but let's try shifting our perspective. Let's try looking at it different from what would Jesus do to what did Jesus do. That hit a little different, don't it? Yeah. Good evening. On on this evening, I'm going to speak to you all on a word of relationship. Imagine relationship. If you don't have relationship, you have nothing. Now, as I begin to look and study this word of relationship, I begin to define this word. I'm going to use a few words just to make sure we understand this word relationship. A connection, a bond, a link, association, affiliation, accord, rapport, dependence, likeness, but I want to make sure I I tell you about this word nearness. You see, when we think of the word relationship in regards to God, the word that comes to mind is simply love. On that day, love was displayed and relationships, a relationship of love was shown. John chapter 19, verses 26 through 27. Woman, behold thy son, and to the disciple, behold thy mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Now, let me see if I can make it plain for you. Woman, here's your son. He looks at the disciple in whom he loved and says, here is your mother. See, as I read the text, Jesus is making a very powerful statement that not only secures his mother's future, but provides provision to his disciple to have authority to take care of his own. You see, this was a relationship of love. How many of us know that God does not take you through something unless he's taking you to something? See, previously, Jesus, he gave a new commandment. So we're going to rewind back back to John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35. I'm giving you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you have love and unselfish concern for one another. You see, as Jesus hung on the cross the day of his crucifixion, there at Golgotha, the place of the skull, Jesus, in his own divinity, you see, I believe he paused his death to ensure that his mother was cared for. 
See, this was a relationship of love. The title woman was a sign of respect and honor. He didn't call her mother. He said woman. This was equivalent to a son saying dear or dear woman. This is Christ separating himself from her as mother. Because, see, he knew the gospel had to be fulfilled. The prophecy had to be fulfilled. Remember, he told his disciples that I'm going to a place you can't come with me, but I'll be back. This was a relationship of love. Jesus addresses his mother as woman, which was perfectly proper for a man to address a woman this way. And the reason for this, one could assume that to formally address a woman as this is probably that Jesus intends his words to be understood as a formal transfer of his mother to his beloved disciple under Jewish family law. You see, Mary's firstborn, Jesus, he's legally responsible for her. And as in my studies during that time, she might have been in, wid in widowhood. So Jesus entrusts his mother to his beloved disciple. Now, I keep on saying beloved disciple. Let's talk about it. Esteemed his beloved disciple. You see, he had to make room. Room had to be made for this relationship. And this relationship went from a relationship of love to stewardship. You see, the phrase the disciple, the one whom he loved, I noticed it four other times where, only in John's gospel, where one of the three disciples closest to Jesus and the only male disciple who's at the foot of the cross during Jesus' death. The others consider this. They're too afraid. Remember, he mentioned that they will scatter. And so that this same disciple, the one in whom he loved, but he came back. But he had to be there at an appointed time. Not only did he have to be there at an appointed time, but when he came back, you see, provision was provided. Because here's a man that was condemned by the Romans. And he was also condemned by leaders of his own people. You see, there were four others. Mary, mother of Jesus. Jesus' mother's sister, Salome. Mary, wife of Clopas, and also Mary Magdalene. These four women, they stood at the feet of Jesus, and they risked everything. They could have been persecuted, flogged, beaten. But guess what? They had a relationship of love. I only got one minute left. And here's what I want to say. When Jesus states, woman, behold thy son, and looks to, looks to John and says, behold thy mother. You see, Jesus shows his filial love. That's love of family. And this relationship, this allows us to know and to, for us to take courage and care because if Jesus can provide for the needs of his own in the moment of his greatest weakness and humiliation, how much more can he provide for our needs in his present wealth and power and exaltation? If Jesus purchased the church with his own blood and ordained that in it mothers find sons and sons find mothers, then no one should be without care and a caring family today in the body of Christ. This was a relationship of love.
Good evening, everyone. Um, so before I begin, I would just like to say that it is an honor to be able to share my interpretation of this saying with you all. After growing up in this church, with this congregation, and watching others before me grace this stage and just offer such wisdom and knowledge, I hope that you all receive something like what I've received all these years. So let's get into the scripture. We have Matthew 27, verse 46, and it reads, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we all know this is a heavy verse. We know that it has a lot of layers. So when they handed it to me, I was a little, you know, had to take a couple of deep breaths. <laughs> but essentially, this is the word of abandonment. And so when I first encountered this verse, I thought it was a little odd. I thought it was odd because the Bible says that I will never leave you nor forsake you. So what could this verse possibly be talking about? Let me tell you what I found. First, I want to start off with a little bit of context. Jesus is up on the cross, and he's dying an excruciating death at the hands of people just like you and me. And while I could talk about the physical pain that Jesus was experiencing all day, I really want to talk about his emotional pain. Hold on, I lost my place. <laughs> okay, yeah, here we go. Notice that all throughout Jesus' life, when he is in prayer, he calls out and he says, Father. But here we see a little bit of a change. He says, my God. And this not only reflects how fully human Jesus was, but it also denotes a little bit of a disconnect. You see, the deeper you get into your relationship with God, you notice that your vocabulary or your labels start to expand. So we start to know him as Lord and Savior. We start to know him as Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Shalom. We start to know him as Father. We start to know him as friend. You see, when people like ourselves are disconnected, we go back to where we started. Back to when we only knew one name. So it goes kind of like, God, please help me with this test. God, please get me out of this situation. God, please make the money stretch a little bit further. So this describes where Jesus was at this moment, disconnected and downgraded. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not to say that using only God's name is a bad thing because we all know that there is power in the name. But this is also not to say that Jesus was always dis disconnected. In fact, we are the reason that Jesus was disconnected. You see, Jesus' mission on this earth was to take the place of sin, to become sin, to bear our heavy burdens, to die and defeat death, hell, and the grave, and to rise again to show God's true dominion. But in that process, we don't often talk about how God has turned his face from his son. You see, God cannot look upon sin. He cannot be in the presence of sin. He cannot bless sin. So ultimately, Jesus was left alone. He was without love. He was without peace. He was about, without the favor of his father, abandoned. So do I believe that the physical pain of the cross is important to know? Of course. But even more is the fact that not only did Jesus take on our sins, but he also took on the most crushing heartbreak and grief that any of us would ever know. We would never know what it was like to call on to God and him not be listening. We would never know what it was like to bear the true burden of our sins. We would never know what it was like to not experience his full mercy and grace. So going back to my original statement, the Bible says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This statement is only true for us 
because God did indeed forsake Jesus that day on the cross. Jesus was forsaken, so we never have to be. So do not be dismayed by this fact. Be encouraged that even in Jesus' darkest moment, the moment that he knew was to come, he still made a cry, a plea to God. He still made an effort to connect. So how much more should we? So this is what I've learned. Express your heart to God. When I was in undergrad, I went through an intense breakup. I'm talking crying every day, barely wanting to get out of bed, not answering anybody's phone calls, and I'm sure we've all been there. <laughs> but for the first couple of weeks of that breakup, I talked to God like I had never talked to him before. Let me walk you through it. It started off like, God, my heart hurts. Why didn't you prepare me? And then it went to, God, please take this pain away to, oh, maybe I'm feeling a little bit better today. <laughs> but that first day was different. That first day, I felt alone. I felt abandoned. And I was mad at God. I was so angry at him that I didn't even want to speak. Now, after a good meal and a nap, <laughs> I decided to give it a try. And when I said it made a world of difference, when I sat down and said, God, I'm mad at you. God, I don't understand. I don't know why this happened. I wish this didn't happen. It made every difference because now I wasn't hiding things from him. I wasn't hiding my emotions. I wasn't hiding my stress. I wasn't hiding my anxiety. I wasn't hiding my problems. Just like Jesus on the cross, I laid it all out there for him to see. And in return, I received the deepest relationship with God I've ever had. All this to say, Jesus was abandoned, so we will never have to be abandoned. And through that, he taught us that relationship with God is only attainable through openness and honesty. So when I think of this verse, Matthew 27, 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I see Jesus setting the ultimate example for all of us. God is there ready to get deep with you. He's ready for what's underneath the surface. He's ready for what's beyond the physical pain. Allow him to hear your cries and shoulder your burden. Do not take the cross for granted. Connect with him, develop relationship, and experience all that he has for you. Thank you. Over the last several weeks, we have been digging into the seven I am statements of Jesus before he goes to the cross. Jesus chose each of those statements to help us understand his divine identity in practical ways known during that time. These statements were powerful to say the least. Just to name a few, he said, I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the true vine. I don't believe it was a mere coincidence that Jesus was placed essentially another I am statement as one of his last words before leaving earth. In those I am statements, he said before leaving earth, they were used to distinguish himself from any other person on earth. No one else can be who he is. No one else is the light of the world. No one else can be the way, the truth, and the life. So why is it that on the cross, moments before his last breath, would Jesus decide to make another self-identifying statement? I'm going to take the next few moments to share two reasons why I believe Jesus made the statement, I am thirsty. Initially, I believe the reason for this comment was for Jesus to take this very vulnerable moment in his distress and in his pain to become relatable. 
though Jesus was hanging on a cross and crucified like a common criminal of that time, I believe Jesus made the statement as his last effort to connect with you and I as humans. I think we often forget that Jesus was 100% God and 100% human all at the same time. This statement, I am thirsty, bridges a connection between himself and the people that he was out to save, which is you and I. You may be thinking, well, how so? See, everybody can't relate to being beaten and hung on a cross. Everybody can't relate to being spat on or mocked in front of a crowd of witnesses. But one thing I know for sure is that every human being on this earth at one point or another has been thirsty. Before our culture's newest way of describing the term thirsty, we originally defined thirsty as a human condition that happens to our physical bodies. When our bodies are deprived of moisture, we become thirsty. This statement made by Jesus points to that human condition that we all share. That comment alone makes him relatable to everyone without regard to ethnicity, gender, or belief. I personally would find it quite difficult to have a relationship with someone or to even get to know someone if I couldn't relate to him. In this moment, though he is the door, though he is the resurrection and life, though he is the good shepherd, yes, Lord, this was a perfect opportunity for him to see and identify with his humanity. The second reason why I believe Jesus made the statement, I am thirsty, more so points to the few words preceding that statement. Just to revisit the scripture, it reads, to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. One of the scriptures that this is referring to is Psalms chapter 69, verse 21, and it reads, but instead they give me poison for food, they offer me sour wine for my thirst. I believe this statement was, to make, was made to show you and I that Jesus then, now, and to come, no matter what the situation looks like, no matter what circumstances we are facing, he will always do what it takes to make sure his word come to pass. If we examine the scripture closely, asking for a drink at this very moment really doesn't sound like a choice. After suffering hours already, I don't believe it was Jesus' top desire to have something to eat or drink anymore, especially knowing what he would be given. He wasn't getting a steak dinner and fresh squeezed lemonade. He knew he was going to be served poison for food and sour wine to drink. I would imagine that he would want this ordeal over with as fast as possible. You know, I'm not sure if any of you can relate, but there's been times where I've been hungry and thirsty, and I get a little irritated. Some people, when they're deprived from what their bodies are thirsting for, they become irate and can't even think straight. But that's a whole nother message for a whole nother day. <laughs> but this condition became so common in today's culture of having reckless and yet somehow justifiable behavior when we're hungry and thirsty that we even came up with a new word for it, hangry. If anyone in life would ever get a pass to be hangry, I would think it would be Jesus. Yet considering all of this, he still remembered scripture. Praise God, he still stuck to the plan of his father for our sakes. That should be an encouragement to you and I today, that even in his own darkest hour, despite his own condition, he still got the job done. For he finished what he was sent to do without leaving anything incomplete. When we can't do something, we use the phrase, our hands are tied. 
And in this case, Jesus' hands were literally nailed to a cross, and he still came through for us. We should rejoice that if his word says it, then we have full confidence that he can do it. He doesn't deviate from the plan, even when culture justifies that he should. I will leave you all with this. All remember that, remember please, that Jesus was 100% God and 100% human. When he said, I am thirsty, he was giving us a point of reference where we can all identify with him. Ultimately, he is saying, I feel you, sis. I feel you, my brother. I know the dehydration. I know the desperation. I've been in the struggle and I felt your pain. He has placed himself in a position where he has become vulnerable. He was able, he was criticized and deprived just so he can relate to our struggles. But praise God, the one that can relate to us is the same one that can save us. He'll rescue us from our troubles and ourselves. And he won't skip any steps for the sake of convenience. Praise God. For years, for years, for years I had the same one vision that pops up in my head every so often. And it was an image of Jesus hanging on a cross. And he turns his head and he says to me, I'm doing this for you. And it wasn't until writing this very message when I truly realized that he wasn't just speaking to Candace. He was speaking to anyone who would accept his sacrifice and even those who unfortunately won't. But impact, be encouraged, Lord God. When you read, I am thirsty, it is a sign of his connection to us and his completion for us in Jesus' name. That's right, y'all. Keep celebrating. Keep celebrating. Yes. What's going on, Impact Family? How y'all doing tonight? All right. My name is Toy. Y'all know me. My word is the word of triumph. So, of course, keep celebrating, y'all, because my word is, it is finished. And um, one thing about this is when you hear the words, it is finished, you think something is done. Well, no, nah, I just began then. The minute he dropped his head, it all started right then and there, y'all. We had to celebrate. The word of triumph. Something was won for us. Team Jesus. The same way y'all can celebrate y'all team when they win the Final Four or the Super Bowl or whatever. You celebrate every day because of Jesus. He finished it. He took care of it for you. Let me get into this word before I get, you know, y'all going to get me going. Okay. It is finished. John 19 and 30. God's plan has begun for our salvation. So what was finished? What was the mission that was now finished. Why did Jesus come? Let's take a closer look at that. Jesus came to earth for several reasons. One of his main goals was to reconcile sinners with God so that they may live with him eternally. He also came to destroy the devil's work and free people, y'all people, held in fear of death. Jesus came to separate believers from non-believers and proclaim truth. His fundamental mission was to fulfill God's plan of saving the lost. Y'all identify as lost? He took care of y'all. Jesus came into the world to save sinners and not judge them. Now, when they gave us his word, they said, think of what it meant then and think of what it meant now. That's why the sports analogy came into my head. Because when you think about what this word meant then and what it meant now, it, it's, you start wondering, well, how, how can the word what, what changed? Heard, I said changed, E-D, right? Let me explain something to you. Nothing changed. The word he gave then, it is finished, was for the past. It is for right now. And then, of course, 
for the future, it's also there. It is finished means he's taking care of it for now, the past, and the future. He's taking care of you all the way through. He paid the ultimate price. Now, when Jesus cried out, it is finished, he meant it was and is finished in the past and today, and it will remain finished. This also reminded me of um, this type of protection. I have seven nieces. Y'all don't know this, but I got seven nieces. I got seven nieces. I probably got more than that when I add up the other little nieces after that. And one thing that's unique about my nieces is that they always come to Atlanta. They always say, Uncle Toy, we're going to come kick it with you. Come do this. All right, cool. You know why they say that? Because they know the minute they land, I take care of their food. They can stay at my house. And they don't have to worry about nothing. We go out to eat. No matter what the bill is, none of them even look at it. Can y'all identify with that? I'm never taking none of y'all out. I promise you that. <laughs> Not even a tip. But <laughs> this is what happens. They feel comfortable with me. They know they're protected. Even when we walk out the restaurant, I'm a kind of a big dude. Nobody messes with them. They feel 100% protected. When we walk, they're on the inside of the street. I'm on the outside just so they don't get hit. And they understand they are fully protected by me. And as much as I think I'm a big dude and can do all this type of stuff, I can only protect them when they're in my presence. Something else has to be there. And as much as I come to church and pray, God's protection has to be there. I can't be everywhere. Doesn't matter who I pay. Doesn't matter what debt I pay. I can't even predict that I'll be there if I'm dead and gone. Who's going to be there? Can you imagine what it feels like for someone to give you eternal protection? Like to pretty much, you, I'm going to speak to you fathers real quick. What if there was someone to protect your daughter when you're dead and gone? What would you pay for that? Think about that. What price would you pay? It's priceless, right? God gave his only son to protect you. God gave his only son to protect you and the people that come after you. Imagine that, being able to pay an ultimate price. See, in the old covenant, the Israelites were required to obey God and keep the law. And in return, he protected and blessed them. Deuteronomy 30, 15, 18. In the new covenant, pay attention to my words now. In the new covenant, things change. That's not past tense. That's ongoing. And God becomes a proactive and unconditional source of salvation and blessing. God demonstrates his own love for us in the way by giving his only son. It is finished is the announcement of obedience fulfilled. Now, how many of y'all guys were here last year when Elder Mencher came up here and did It Is Finished? Y'all remember that? Y'all was cheering. Y'all was up. In there. Everybody loved it, right? She was up here. Elder James didn't get up and stop after she went over seven minutes or nothing. <laughs> Couldn't even do none. Because, <laughs> sorry, but <laughs> had to call that out because uh, I don't want to stop at me. Uh, but, again, when something is finished and completed, there is a reason to be happy. There is a reason to triumph. What if y'all had y'all favorite team that won every single year? Could that even be possible? Anybody's team has the longest, who has the longest winning streak in sports? Don't worry, you don't got to tell me because I guarantee you what, they're not going to win. They're they not going to win in the future probably. They may be winning now. They probably didn't win in the past. Nothing has a long streak longer than Jesus. A long winning streak. So when you're on team Jesus, guess what? You can wake up every day because you won. 
you can celebrate every day because you won. Now, mind you, there's going to be some things that make, make you not want to celebrate. But guess what? You still won anyway. Because no matter what he takes you through, you're going to get through it and be the winner. Now, I'll be honest. I heard everybody come up here, and I was like, oh, my gosh. I want to scrap my seven minutes. Matter of fact, I want to do a remix on Sunday and come back with some more word. All right, he's shaking his head. But either way, I hope y'all take everything we've given y'all and understand this. It is finished means a promise. And, and I'm sorry, it is finished means promises and prophecies were now fully accomplished in him. Amen. Hold on, I ain't done. I'm about to get my elder mention on. Y'all got to hold on now. Y'all get y'all Bibles out in the little green Gideon Bible. Let's go. It is finished symbolizes salvation of God's gift to us. Romans 5, 15. It is finished means Jesus paid the debt in full with his earthly sacrifice. John 8, 36. It is finished means believers are free from condemnation forever. Romans 8, 1 through 2. It is finished means our fruit is evidence of the Holy Spirit works in our lives, not our own faithfulness. John 15, 4 and 5. And it's finished means you need to celebrate today, tomorrow, and continuously celebrate and teach your children to celebrate because God completed it for you. It is finished. Dear gracious God, just have your way. Mold these lips of clay, Father God, that you may speak through me, Father God, so that your people will hear your words. Father God, I just give myself unto you. Have your way in Jesus' name. I, I was thinking about just coming up here and saying amen because of all the word that has went forth. I tell you, I was like, I, I, I don't know if I can. Okay. Clock's ticking. Luke 23, 46. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Father, unto your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. And my word is reunion. And if I could define that, it's an instant of two or more people coming together again after a period of separation or disunity. Now, I want to talk about two different types of separation. Separation due to disunity or disobedience, which is sin. And the second, a divine separation, which is ordained by God for a greater purpose. If I could just go back a little bit, wind the clock back to the garden when Adam was sitting there. At, this is after they had partaken of the forbidden fruit. God came around and said, Adam, where are you? It's not like God didn't know where he was physically, but he was wondering where he was relationshiply. See, he was looking for this spiritual connection because they used to walk in the cool of the day. They used to hang out together all the time and just worship and have a good time. But now since sin has entered, that there was a disconnect. There was a separation. And God was wondering what was going on. So one of the most devastating situations that we can go through in life of separation is when we are faced as humans to be separated from God. See, God had to do something miraculous and, and cover their sins. He had to cover them up with a sacrifice of blood. Nevertheless, but God, with his infinite wisdom, 
began a restoration process. He began to prepare and set up for a family reunion. See, this preparation took over 42 generations and came through the bloodline of King David. So if we fast forward just a little bit because the clock is ticking. In a time where Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, talking about these gardens again, things happen for a reason. Jesus fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass away from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Matthew 26, 39. For he was crying because of the separation that he was feeling. Because he was carrying the sins of this world. And, and he knew that there was going to be a separation that he was going to have to deal with. That he wouldn't be able to reach and touch God like he was used to. Somebody say, help me, Lord. But he realized that what he was going through was a divine separation. This was something that had a greater purpose that God had already set in motion back in Genesis. This was something that had to happen. So, Lord, not my will, but God, let your will be done. So if we jump up to today's text and look at Jesus hanging on the cross and the sun had turned dark and the veil of the temple was ripped from the top to the bottom, representing the removal of division. Then Jesus cried out, unto your hands I commit my spirit. He was saying, I am the final and complete payment for sin to cover your people. I understand what I have to do. Even though I'm in pain and I'm suffering, I love your people so much that I'm willing to follow your will and do your word. Somebody shout yes! Even on the brink of death, our Lord and Savior was confident. He knew the overall mission that he was up to. And don't you know he's up to do anything and everything for you? Because he loves you so much, regardless of what you've done, regardless of where you've been, regardless of what you said, God still loves you so much that he gave his only son to be the propitiation of your sins. Somebody shout, thank you, Jesus. Woo! He was saying it was over. I paid it in full. He was teaching us in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his suffering, that he reached up to God because he knew that his salvation was through him. Hallelujah. He knew he was the only one worthy of refuge. One he knew that was able to relieve his pain and suffering. For he was teaching us that we should look to the hills from which cometh our help. Because my help comes from the Lord. There's power in the blood of Jesus. There's power in the blood of Jesus. The 
blood of Jesus will cover every fault. It'll cover every sin. Somebody shout yes. Jesus paid it all. Jesus knew it. So we got to get out of the habit of trying to secure things ourselves. Trying to set up stuff for ourselves. Trying to protect it in the banks. In the safe. And understand that our greatest possession is our spirit. And we should commit it to God for safekeeping unto the Father's hands. The word says, lay not up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust does corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay yourself up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupt and where thieves don't be able to destroy it or break through and steal it. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He paid it for you. It's all covered. Lord, I commit myself unto you as payment for your people. Have your way. 